Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to Product Coffee, where product professionals from Ibotta share stories, advice, and thoughts on all things product, of course, over a cup of coffee. So uh, grab a cup of joe and join us to level up your career 30 minutes at a time. Today's topic is how to make good product decisions. I am one of your uh, product co-hosts, Zach LaGreca. Bergen DeVell. Kevin Gentry. I'm Jake Orland. Patrick Kuchkowski. I think part of being a good product manager, first of all, is to make decisions. Um, that's, that's always a place to start. I think if you're not making decisions, you're not managing your product. Um, we can get into probably what is a good decision, but if you're not making decisions, you're not testing, you're not learning. So I would just start, maybe, it, start with that. Yeah, maybe we can talk about like decision framework. Like what yeah. kind of, do you guys have any methodologies you use or fall on? Um, when making like a high fidelity decision. Yeah, I think, you know, as you kind of pan back on like every day or every week, there are, you know, thousands and thousands of decisions we make uh, personally and professionally. And so um, I think one of the important pieces of of like having a framework is breaking up like levels of importance for decisions you have to make. So there are small you know, decisions that you can maybe make very quickly, and there, there are much bigger picture decisions that I think take a lot more thought. And so um, my first piece of advice would be break up your, your decisions into really, really uh, high impact decisions, and then smaller decisions uh, that maybe won't change things as much for you on a day-to-day basis, and kind of scale the, the amount of time you, you invest in those accordingly. Yeah, I think one of the uh, interesting talks that I attended lately or recently was from the uh, one of the tech leads here at Ibotta, and that was focused on type one and type two decisions and how to make those uh, distinctions. And I think this, like, is, I guess, decision permanency is kind of the concept here that this falls under is something that we should be exercising on a daily basis when something comes to you as a product manager. And I think a lot of times, uh, especially in an organization where product responsibility is shared for across the business, like we go to other people to ensure that our decisions are aligned with, with others. But in a lot of cases, those decisions could be made independently on the team. And um, I think a good way of breaking that down is like, type two decision where you need to have buy-in across the organization would be something like the URL for your website, something that you're going to live with forever. You don't want to have to change that once it goes out into the world. But a type one decision could be maybe the color schema on your website when you first release it. That's something that you could probably decide on as a team. So I think if you can look at every decision under that framework, it helps uh, the individual to be empowered to make that decision or, or bring in other stakeholders to weigh in. So we should probably step back a quick second and and let the listeners know what we mean when we say type one, type two, and where that originated. So it does come from Amazon, from Jeff Bezos, uh, where a type one is something that you can't 
change without a significant mm-hmm. impact to the business versus a type two is something that you can change quickly. So if you screw up, it's not uh, something that's gonna require a lot of money and effort to change. Yeah, it's all, it's all about risk management, right? And I think there's, I think it's an easy, it's an easy trap to fall into to try and get a, a lot of buy-in for every decision that you ever make. But if you do that, you're gonna be moving very slowly, right? Because trying to corral all of those people together is hard and takes a lot of time. People are busy um, and everyone has opinions and will make you rethink things. Um, so I think it's, it's all about judging the level of risk that that decision implies, which is I think what this type one, type two framework does a really good job of helping to articulate. Um, but if it's, a, if it's a low risk decision, if it's reversible, you can probably just make that in isolation, right? Autonomously and make that decision on your own. Um, However, as you kind of go up that risk scale, you're going to also want to go up on the buy-in scale as well, right? So maybe it's an individual decision, then maybe it's a consultative decision, and then maybe it's like a a voting decision where you still hold the final final power, and then maybe the biggest one is you need consensus, right? And that might be, Bergen, to your point, like changing the URL of your website. Uh, But what is that risk factor and how, how can you mitigate that as much as possible? Does that also tie to, to uh, financial implications of decisions as well? I mean, risk uh, can be a lot of risk can be broken down into a lot of different um, factors. I think um, when there's financial risk, there does become um, the need to ensure that your product decision there's alignment across your stakeholders. I think with a, a lot of the stuff that maybe with PWI, the way with fraud, for example, like that would probably be a decision that scales outside of just the team. Um, In my case with rewards optimization, how we're changing reward values in the app with machine learning models, marketing is our biggest stakeholder there because it's their budget. So a lot of decisions, I I think when I initially started, maybe I assumed autonomy, but when do you, is it a financial like tipping point that you bring in others? I would like to talk about that and get your perspective across the board. Like, mm-hmm. um, when does that become like a, when to achieve alignment on the yeah. decision? Yeah, mm-hmm. I think like what is risk? Yeah, in the what is risk of like a product organization? Mm-hmm. I think I think it really depends on the product, right? Like, if you're launching, um, so PWI is one of our many acronyms here. Oh. Um, I'm sure. <laughs> Many of you folks have a lot of wonderful acronyms at your various companies, but it's a, it's an acronym for Pay with Ibotta, which is a, a mobile payments product we've launched. Um, and so, in, in the example of a payments product, uh, you have inherent risks with uh, you know again fraud is a factor. There's some certain high level financial risks that could be involved with that. There's also uh, the security of information for your your users' financial information. Whereas you know if you're launching say like a, a survey uh, product that helps users you know ask questions of various team members. Um, the, the the risks might be inherently different. Those risks might have more to do with um, how do we gain traction for this particular thing? How much of a marketing budget can we spend? Um, and so I, I think it, it really does depend. But I think the first step is to look at what are the, the biggest risks for the product and maybe try to quantify those, whether the quanti- like you're quantifying them from a financial standpoint or whether you're quantifying them from like a, a brand uh, risk standpoint or, or something else. Um, that's probably a good starting point. And, and, and those are some of the stakeholders you'll want to bring in respectively. I think the other risk factor that I would throw in there is something along the lines of opportunity cost, right? Like you're you're yeah. risking you're risking committing resources to the wrong thing, 
right? And that has financial implications, that might have brand implications, that might have market share, market power implications, but you're also risking kind of the user at the end of the day too, that you're not solving the right problem for them. Um, so how do you mitigate that, right? I think that's something that we as product managers are probably most concerned with when we think about, are we actually, like when you think about the whole MVP process, that's all about mitigating that risk that you're not solving the right problem for users. So since you just said another acronym, I'm gonna make you explain okay. it really quick. <laughs> Go <laughs> for those it. those who don't know. I'm gonna make you explain. All right. So <laughs> what is it? What does MVP? MVP? Yeah. Oh yeah, minimum viable product. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, so the, the concept of building something lightweight and mainly to test an assumption about a problem space in the market um, without overcommitting resources and waking up in three months realizing you built the wrong thing. Yeah, it's actually kind of interesting. I you know I think an MVP or minimum viable product really is just a form of decision making that a product manager makes uh, to validate a product, to prioritize core features. Um, so, you know, I, I hadn't really thought of it, thought of it that way, but I, I think that makes sense. Uh, you know, we're kind of looking at this macro scale, like how to make good, you know, we're calling it product decisions. I think we started at kind of a high level, you know, how do you make good overall business decisions, which is a factor of an EPM. But I think MVP is a good example of one, maybe one of the more if not day-to-day, like week-to-week types of decisions a product manager makes. Um, Can we think of any other types of maybe product management-specific decisions uh, that are are fairly regular for PMs? I think one that comes to mind for me is um, maybe, uh, so MVP might be like the first step, uh, ongoing prioritization of like new features might be the next one. I don't know, any other thoughts? I think prioritization in general, uh, especially when you have a roadmap with the, there's a lot of stakeholders involved in the process or reliant on the things that you're doing. You have a lot of dependencies. There's going to be a lot of, hey, why isn't this done? Or I need this done first and justification for your priority, um, dealing with something like that now. um, Maybe that's something we can go into as well. Yeah. Thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I, I definitely think that's, that's important. So, I mean, looking at prioritization uh, among different stakeholders, like, um, let's get into how, yeah, how we make those decisions. Like, so looking at a series of features, you know, you've now been tasked with a, a new product rollout, uh, some new feature ideas within an existing product. Um, like how, how do you make those decisions? Where do you, where do you start? Yeah, I think for, for me, it's getting, there's, there's all these types of input um, that you have to intake to make some of these decisions. Some of that is market research. Some of that is product domain expertise. Um, some of that is you know input from stakeholders. Some of that is input from customers. Um, so you're kind of taking in all of these sources of information and then you're making the best decision with all the information that you have. But some of the time, um, those stakeholders don't understand all of those inputs of decision or they might not understand oh I didn't realize that you, there's this market research telling us this right so transparency of how you made the decision I think is important in prioritization mm-hmm. yeah. 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 To, Go ahead. to to piggyback on that I think that another factor of consideration amongst those four that you mentioned is the financial opportunity. Yep. And if you are able to quantify that, it does help from a prioritization standpoint. So if your team is focusing on building something new, but 
a stakeholder or one of the you know your teams that you work with comes to you with a, a new feature that could drive X dollars for the business mm-hmm. and they can show that business case, it does kind of help, I think from a product standpoint, communicate the importance of a feature to an engineering team when you can tie that back to the business value that that's going to bring the organization. I think a lot of times we're the funnel of information into our teams and a lot of there's a lot of moving pieces especially in our you know in our business that's a high growth business we have a lot of things going on at once and when you go to the team that hey i know we're working on this one thing but we're going to have to add this other feature or other work to the team's plate if you can go to them equipped with whether it's market research or that financial analysis and say like this is why it's important I think you can get buy-in from from the team that you work with. That's a good point. There's, um, I think it comes down to the product that you're working on and the core KPI yep. that is driving priority, right? Like we, um, Bergen and myself, drive more monetary-driven products, so it's fairly easy to say, okay, this is going to drive more money. Mm-hmm. Easy to prioritize higher than that. But other teams are also focused on maybe um, registration funnel or. Um, um, active users right and then they'll have to prove that metric out as well yeah. and that's that's a little harder to do sometimes um i guess it, it all kind of is hard because <laughs> there's an element of predicting the future and forecasting that is just challenging and you kind of get better over time but then things change and you know yeah. so you try to do the best you can with what you got at the time but yeah i think it it all comes down to speaking the language of the people you're talking to as well right like bergen you're talking about putting it in financial terms Patrick, with like register and activate, you may be talking more about like activation rate, right? Yeah, these are exactly. the metrics that we all agree on as a company that these are the ones that we care about. Mm-hmm. Um, and how how can you articulate not just the the trade offs you're making, but I think also very important is articulating the problem that you are seeking to solve and quantifying that in a way that stakeholders and those around you understand and can then start to understand your perspective and the trade offs that you're considering on the table. Yeah, and I think that actually speaks volumes to not only like how do you prioritize when you're looking at KPIs, but one of the things that I know I've struggled with when I was getting into product was how do you break down just a feature or even develop a backlog to start with? And so one tool set that I've fallen back on is something from Agile, uh, in particular in Scrum, which is the idea of a Scrum Zero. Um, And generally speaking, what you want to do is figure out what your end state is, and then whether it's on sticky notes or some sort of software tool, basically document every single thing that you want to build, and then take the time to stack rank them to determine the level of effort in order to do it. Because as you start to flesh out really what it is and all the components that become part of it, it does let you understand, hey, yes, this feature overall may be prioritized because we're going to have this KPI. But then inside of that feature, here's the things we need to do in order to build it. This is the scope we're going to have to cut in order to meet this timeline. Maybe we understand what's outside of scope that way. Uh, it's just a very interesting tool that I've fallen back on. So I'm not sure if others have a similar tool set or something that they've gleaned over time just to, to really narrow down into like mm-hmm. the true day-to-day kind of yeah, product. Yeah, recently, the, I don't know if it's a, um, like a, a common methodology, but we just looked at business value. And we said, what business value do we want to drive? And we kind of, we stack rank that. And some of it was, um, some of the reason to stack rank was due to um, foundational work, which um, you essentially can't get around sometimes. Um, So 
prioritizing the foundational work up front, but then realizing um, the results later on. So you kind of stack rank the business value and then break that down from there. So saying, here's the end state, what do we need to get there, like you said, and kind of break that down to smaller epics or um, uh, features, right? I'm kind of hearing some themes and I think it's, you know, in order to make an MVP, the most minimum thing you can do to, to test an idea, you have to prioritize from a series of potential solutions to prioritize from a series of potential solutions, you have to understand the problem you're solving. To do that, you have to understand your user, which ties heavily in with your like your mission and the vision for what your team your, is trying to accomplish. And then you have to be able to communicate that. And so I, I, I almost see that as several different layers of like product decisions. I think there's kind of the the product layer of setting your mission and understanding like the problem space and your core users uh, is kind of that like that vision level um, and then there's I think the strategy level of communicating that effectively and I think that's where you start to distill you know who am I talking to am I talking to some people from the finance team or are you talking to somebody from the sales team or is it somebody from engineering and getting through that kind of product strategy layer is where you you start aligning the pieces of okay they're coming to it from this accounting perspective or technical perspective and how do you pull all of those things back up to that vision layer um, and then as you kind of drill down from there I think is where we get into the prioritization yeah I think that's a great call out um, I think the, another question that I have for the group is what happens once you make the decision right are you are you calling out assumptions are you calling out risks are you looking for those things like how do you how do you handle that scenario what do you do once you make that decision I know personally, once I've made a decision or I've gotten enough feedback and buy-in, then I'm generally taking it to the people that are actually building it, and hopefully they've been part of this process along the way. So don't discount having your engineers and your designers and everyone that's going to help build this in that room, helping to flesh out what this feature is, because they'll provide much better feedback. They're really not utilizing their full potential if you're not. Um, but once it comes down to that, then it really is what's what's tear this apart and what's really see like how can we do this and how can we do it oftentimes twice as fast or three times as fast because we know that's not really what's going to happen. So for me, it's, okay, decision point made. Now let's figure out the, the nitty gritty and the tactical details. But yeah, you definitely need to call out assumptions and concerns. because Yeah, I think one of the things that I'm, going, I'm starting to try that I haven't really done in the past, so if anyone has, I'd love to hear you guys' feedback on this, but trying to get sign-off on decisions um, in a very formal written documentation way to say like, mm -hmm. hey, this is kind of like give you an example. Here's the roadmap. Um, here's our first proposal um, at you know our strategy. Here's the roadmap. Here's that uh, order that we want things in. Um, getting sign off from the key stakeholders that impact this decision. Do you agree with this? And then having them actually sign or like you know visually see like I can go version history and see that you checked off on this item. Um, not only on the, the order, but then as you kind of achieve each item, making sure that they sign off, that they believe it's done, I believe it's done, that engineers believe it's done. So there's no question of like going back, hey, you said you would deliver this feature and it's not delivered, right? And then no, well, you actually signed off on it. So I'm gonna try something like yeah. that. Um, I think it just holds us all accountable mm -hmm. um, and I think yeah. But I'm curious if anyone else has tried something like that. I, I've seen it done, mm -hmm. and I've seen it done very effectively. Wow. Um, oh, that's a good sign. <laughs> yeah, you, you should actually talk to Joe about it. Yeah. Because um, okay. he did it for 6.0. And it, it's really that's come great. through and helped him. That's great. Because what happens, I think, is um, you get all these stakeholders in a room, 
you all in the moment you're like yeah this is great let's do it <laughs> and then everyone forgets about the decision the moment you like exit the room <laughs> yes right so they have different assumptions of what that decision exactly. was maybe and then yeah. you fast forward yeah. four weeks and yeah. they're like oh let's do this new thing and you're like well hang on a second we all had this decision yeah. we made this decision you can pull up that document and say hey here's your signature mm-hmm. right and i think really what it does a really good job of doing is it protects your roadmap from mm-hmm. future pivots yes. that are out of your control so interestingly enough, I'm not sure how many of our listeners are project managers and come from like a technical project management background. The specific document that uh, we're referencing is actually a project charter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so great uh, homework examples or homework assignment to go look up what a project charter is and how to apply it because it's just that. Mm-hmm. It's yep. here's the executive sponsor. They've signed off on it. Here's the project lead. Here's all the stakeholders that are responsible and I've seen it work really well for much larger projects, mm-hmm. yeah. especially yeah, ones exactly. that have yeah. a long term. Mm-hmm. Um, I think in the, the short term, if you have a project that's going to take you two months or less, mm-hmm. potentially, you probably don't want a project charter mm-hmm. because you're probably going to spend too much time up front mm-hmm. building it and getting the sign off than yeah. just executing. Yeah. yeah. One thing I have found effective, like not necessarily, but for a smaller thing than a project charter, even just decisions that are made in a stakeholder meeting or in a stand-up with a couple, we have stakeholders participate in our stand-ups rather frequently, is sending out an email with the written out decision that Mm -hmm. was made because we're all really busy. We have a lot of things that we're juggling at the same time. I think a lot of times you see heads nodding around the table and you think everybody is in agreement. So you're like, all right, we're gonna go do this. You go do it. And it was like, wait, we we didn't all say we were on board with that. I was like, but we all did say we were on board. Mm -hmm. So now, um, I'm trying a new approach where I do try to write out the decisions and then ensure that each stakeholder responds via email that they mm-hmm. are aligned with the decisions that yeah. were made. Because yeah. um, mo- some of the stuff we're working on isn't that six-month roadmap, but it is like, hey, four weeks from now, this is the plan. We're going to launch this. Everybody's on board. Mm-hmm. Can I get a si- like electronic signature via email yeah. or just a check? You know. Yeah. So I think for those high-risk decisions, right? Like. We talked about the very beginning, getting that buy-in for those super high mm-hmm. risk decisions. If that's what you need and you deem the risk level to be high enough that you need that level of um, consensus or group buy-in, like actually make them commit to it, yeah. right? Like I think it's easy, to your point, for people to sit around the table, nod their head, but they're really checking email and half listening, <laughs> yeah. right? As yep. opposed to saying, yes, I commit to this decision. Mm-hmm. And then they are now personally invested in that decision success. Yeah, yeah I think even just um, putting that approval in their face forces them to kind of reevaluate the decision more carefully as well, right? Yeah, so they sure. will do their homework potentially potentially I mean sometimes <laughs> maybe, maybe it's just a checkbox like in terms of yeah. <laughs> conditions but. we're giving them the chance to do their homework yeah exactly yeah um, so I think we, we've touched on uh, like the business aspect of decision making a fair amount um, how do we factor in um, like user like specifically the user into this decision making process is there any difference in, in how we go about any of this or it's a bit vague. I think my first thought about this is it's easy to forget the user because they're not sitting at the table. Mm-hmm. Um, and making sure that you're not prioritizing business objectives at the expense of user needs is always something that we as PMs need to be running point on because no one else will. 
Yeah, I would challenge everybody to take the time to get in front of all of your users um, as frequently as possible. Um, I know personally I've actually screwed up in this area and factored in too much of the business needs over the user needs. Mm -hmm. um, a perfect example is with fraud. So the more we mitigate fraud, the better the business does, but it's almost always at the expense of the user. So there has to be a give and take. Mm -hmm. And in one instance, we saw that there was a bunch of fraud coming in, so we clamped down. And then we ended up losing a bunch of really good users because we were catching them as kind of the false positives. So you do need mm -hmm. to constantly listening to them and thinking about it. So I think initially better for the business, right? Mm -hmm. Like it's easy in the shorter term to think, mm -hmm. oh, we're protecting ourselves so much better, uh, but looking at that opportunity cost, like, it, you know, if you're you know, capping out what your users can do on your app and you would have had a certain growth trajectory that would have you know, been more of an exponential curve and you're kind of cutting that off, I think, yeah, that's, that's an important factor. And I think it speaks volumes to the size of your business as well. So depending on if you're a new startup, you may have to prioritize users or business first, depending on if you need to grow the business really quickly or if you need to attract users and you're willing to lose money just to get that user base. So pay attention, understand what the business metrics are as a company size where you are too. Kevin, I think this is probably something you think about all the time mm -hmm. with ad products. Mm -hmm. um, there's a there's a big conflict there. Like, yeah, yeah we want to push more ads, but mm -hmm. users can only take so much. Like, how do you how do you walk that balance? Yeah, that's a great question. I love this question because I've been in ad tech for about like five six years now, and um, kind of seen the nasty side of it. But, um, and it's funny, every developer that joins my team, I ask if they have an ad blocker on, installed. <laughs> About 90%. <Yeah. laughs> um, and the reason why is just because um, technology's made that experience so terrible. Yeah. Um, they have optimized for the dollar and because there's an incredible amount of middlemen involved, right? So the thought and why I wanted to join Ibotta was we have an opportunity to make that experience so much better and actually delightful. Um, so making ads that don't suck is yeah. kind of our team's mission. So that's <laughs> nice. kind of exciting where, yeah, if you optimize for the user, the business will follow, yeah. right? The dollars will follow. And I think um, because ad tech was such a new business and a new area, there was a race to the middle. There was a lot of middlemen involved, like I said, and technology, um, a lot of advancements in technology in a very short period. So a lot of the major players that were slower took a longer time to adopt. Um, so now the platforms are getting smarter and then they're building this technology in-house or they're partnering with uh, technology providers that have this and they're building it in-house and making better experiences. So you're seeing all of this news crop up about um, you know, brands leaving Facebook or uh, brands not wanting to buy on open exchanges because all of the fraud and all the craziness with user data. And, um, so you will continue to see kind of that um, uh, motion in the, in the headlines there, but uh, I think... I love that because, again, it's an opportunity to um, per build something for the users and build something mm -hmm. that's uh, that doesn't suck. So, out of curiosity, yeah. what is an ad that doesn't suck? <laughs> <laughs> that's a good, no, that's a great question, right? Um, I mean, a pop-up ad obviously sucks, right? <laughs> something that breaks you out of the user flow. I think if there's an ad that... Uh, I, I use Instagram as a good example just because they have um, relevant ads that I've actually clicked on and purchased something. So basically all an ad is is you're connecting a brand to a user um, and a user to a brand, right? So if you can do that effectively and have a good conversation between the two, I think that's a good ad, right? 
So how you do that is the challenge, right? <laughs> and if you're at Ibotta, you also can pay the user to interact with the brand. So I think that we're leveraged, we're in a good position to uh, take advantage of good ads. You raise, I think, a really important principle. And while I do agree, sometimes you have to kind of moderate between like uh, user growth and business efficiency, the two kind of do work together for the most part. And anytime you err on the side of your users, long term, that is, is likely going to be helpful for the business. I mean, exactly. you can't yep. ignore every other aspect. You have to find find kind of the right balance. Um, but I think I think that is the key is you want to optimize for the user. Um, all right, should we maybe go around with any final thoughts? I, I have one, so maybe yeah. I can start. Yeah. Um, so one other thing I, I would throw out there for making decisions is knowing how much time to invest thinking about and making a decision. Um, again, we've talked about kind of severity or the impact of these really big, meaty decisions that could change the course of your product or your company or your team, uh, and these much smaller day-to-day -day decisions like changing the location of a button. But you know, I, I would say that look for enough information, but... Uh, don't feel paralyzed by not having all the information. Mm -hmm. You know, once you hit a yeah. certain point of like 70, you have 70% of the information to give you confidence that's in your decision. Point, yeah. That's probably enough. Cap it there. Make the decision. Yeah. It's better to make a decision and keep moving than mm -hmm. to sit and wait for that remaining 30%. Plus one. Yeah, and actually to build off of that, one thing that the military taught me, so there's the concept of the military decision-making process. And as leaders, you're supposed to use the one-third, two-third rule, where you're dedicating one-third of your time to plan and then you're supposed to give it to your subordinates in order to execute on it for two-thirds of the time. Mm -hmm. So it does highlight just that. You shouldn't, if you're taking all the time to plan, you never have time to execute. So yeah. make sure you're, you're being careful. Yeah. I think what I would say is um, don't be afraid to make decisions autonomously. Um, kind of going back to something we talked about a little bit earlier is try, I think with that one-third time, like judge the level of risk that this decision implies and then involve the appropriate number of people in the decision-making process. Um, it's an art, it takes reps and practice to figure mm. out when you need a lot of people and when you can move um, lean and fast, kind of make that decision a little bit more in isolation. Um, but always be aware of, um, the tendency I think is to over, over commit to consensus because that feels like you are spreading the risk around amongst other people. Um, so I would challenge everyone listening to try and be a little bit more autonomous in their decision making. And my last thought would be to um, give us your framework. What frameworks do you guys use to um, make decisions? Um, how do you kind of think about these things, the big versus the small? Um, stakeholder input, all of the above, right? Um, and send that in and that'll help us out and we'll read you know, our favorites on the air. <laughs> Post it in the comments. Yeah, um, that'll be your homework. So go look at frameworks, post in the comments, and uh, apply those those frameworks this week to decisions you're making. So, well, um, I'm basically finished with my coffee. I don't know about you guys. So, yep. Uh, thanks for the refill. Yeah, let, let's go <laughs> refill. Thanks for listening. Now go level up. <laughs>